and welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Runcy. Our guest today is the former VP of Bad Boy. He is the CEO of Power Moves, the founder of the Global Spin Awards, music executive, entrepreneur, Mr. Sean Prez. Welcome to the podcast, man. Dan, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much. Great to have you. Thanks for coming on. Last time we talked coronavirus and everything that we're living in right now was just starting to pick up and you and I were comparing how things are. But since then, I feel like even the world has continued to change. How are you holding up with everything? How's it been? You know, this coronavirus, I don't know if we as Americans took it as serious as we should have even two weeks ago, but everything's changed. I live here in New York City Outside of Washington State, this is the hot spot of America. And I already know several people, and I mean literally several people who have passed away from the virus, not just infected, but passed away. So there's a different reality that we're living in right now. And my condolences goes to everybody who has experienced loss and people who now are just ill and, you know, they're not sure on where they're going in terms of their health. So I just want to keep all of these people in prayer who's been affected. But so far, in terms of my family and myself, we've been quarantined and, you know, knock on wood, thank God, everything's been okay. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear about those that you lost. It's a scary time, especially for both of us. We both live in two of the most densely packed metro areas in the U.S. And when you just hear about the cases, you hear about everything happening, going outside or even the essentials you need to do when you get outside, you become so conscious of how to take your necessary precautions and in many ways a bit fearful for what the rest of the coming weeks and what the coming months might have in store. Absolutely. But on a lighter note, you had started your career, at least from a music perspective, on the Bad Boy Days, VP of Marketing, helping to lead a lot of the street team efforts. Love to hear what that experience was like and specifically what are some of those lessons that you had learned from those days? First and foremost, it was arguably the best time of my life. Those were incredible days, and it was incredible days for several different reasons. Number one, back in the mid-90s, Bad Boy Records was a startup. You know, it was small. I mean, if you could imagine 1,200 square feet at best, that was the size of the first office. But there were young hungry, highly aggressive people who worked at this office. Most of us did not work for a paycheck, you know, was predominantly interns and the staff was really small in terms of those who were paid. Whereas we just love the music industry. We love the music. We love the entertainment. And we had our finger on the pulse of where the world was going in terms of hip hop at a time that You know, the world didn't recognize hip hop for what it has become, this multi-billion dollar industry. We were right there on the front lines of changing music and changing culture and changing entertainment, but we didn't know it at the time. We were just working our butts off because we had these dope artists, Biggie Smalls of the world and Faith Evans and Mace. I mean, you got the locks. You guys know them all. For us, we just wanted to be the best record label possible. And we were led by a genius. We were led by a guy named Sean Combs, who was 
so ahead of his time. And it's interesting because even in real time, you knew how special he was. And you understood that if I'm going to become anything in this industry, I have to be able to keep up with this man who was the Energizer Bunny. You know, at that age, he was so very young. We were just really trying to put out the best music, but it turned out to be the best times of our life. So I I love that experience. Was there a moment that you realized that this was going to be something special? Because you mentioned in the beginning, right? This 1,200 foot square apartment, it felt like a startup. And I'm sure there was a lot of unknown of, you're putting in all this work. When did you feel like, yes, this is going to be something that's going to be remembered for generations? I don't know if I ever felt that way because it's almost like when you're in the heat of battle, right? You know, we're going to work, we're young at this time. I don't know, I was in my early 20s at that time maybe 21, 22. When you're in the heat of battle, you're just laser focused at the mission at hand. And yes, there are these milestones and we are being celebrated, but I don't know at that time that I was able to recognize like, holy smoke. Granted, so many of the singles we were dropping were becoming hits. So I was recognizing like, you know, we're batting a thousand here. Like everything that's going out there is hitting. Even seeing how each one of us individually, those who were down with the team, Puff is at the top of the chain, but everybody who was down with the team, our stock and our clout and just our influence on the industry, it was rising. You know, there were superstars. You could be on the street team and you were a superstar. So maybe in that regard, I realized that, hey, we're on to something special, but typically you can't see how the dots connect and you can't see the beauty of a masterpiece that was created until you look backwards. So as I look back, I understand every day. And when I listen to radio and these hits, they're still as relevant today as they were so many years ago. I understand like we were really part of something special. You mentioned the street team and how the street team became stars in themselves. I think a lot of the people listening heard of street teams. What are the mechanics of that? What was it like organizing that? Because that's such a thing that was so critical at that moment in time. But now I wouldn't say it's non-existent in music. It's just changed in such a different way. So what was that like in the nineties? Okay. So the best way that I can explain what the street teams were like was for anybody who's listening I know we're all accustomed to cell phones and we're accustomed to all of these social platforms, whether it is Instagram or Facebook, so forth and so on, right? There was none of that in the 90s. There were no influencers online. The influencers were in the streets. The influencers were those people who, when they listened to something, just because they listened to it, Everybody else around them were like, hold on, what are they listening to? Because I need to be up on that. Or if they were a person who were wearing a certain type of sneakers, everybody else around them would be like, oh, he's rocking those Jordans or he's rocking those. I need to be rocking those. The street teams, we were marketers, but we really were the first influencers. We were the ones on the ground because... In the 90s, people look at hip-hop today. Hip-hop is, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. It wasn't that in the 90s. It was still growing. That's why it's called the golden age of hip-hop, the 90s. 
but we were on the front line of helping to grow it and taking it into the mainstream. So we didn't have these huge budgets that a lot of the artists are able to get these days because back in those days, hip hop, it wasn't a proven art form yet. People thought that it was fad. It was going to come. It was going to go. So we had to start to think of out of the box ways to market our records, market our products. And the street teams, they were the ones on the ground. The street teams were the ones in every market. These were the people who were looked at as the trendsetters and We want to get them our music, have them in the clubs talking to the DJs about our music, have them in the streets handing out the flyers, have them in the schools talking to all of their friends and constituents about, you know what, this artist is dope. He's going to be the one that's next or she's going to be the one that's next. You know, and the Bad Boy Street team has become this iconic team in the history of music. You know, when you talk about um, street teams in the record industry, we kind of popularized and invented so many of the modern day tactics that are used. But we did it not because it was something that was expected of us. We did it because we just didn't have a lot of money and we needed to come up with creative ways to market our records. And the best way to do it was to get people on the ground in every market who were homegrown and were really the influencers of their day and have them going out and being ambassadors and evangelists for our artists. And they really were a huge part of the reason that Bad Boy was able to infiltrate so many different markets in a way that it did with our records. And not just with our records, but with also in terms of the culture. At that time, if you can remember the 90s, hip hop was very grimy, was very hood the bad boy movement was very swagged out you know we came and cleaned up the game the music was very different than what was popular back then a lot of the credit has to go to the amazing bad boy street team around the u.s there's a bunch of things that i like hearing about that story one it pulled on all the guerrilla marketing tactics that are rich in all these textbooks and all these examples of what had to be done. But you all did these out of necessity. It wasn't like some thing that was like done on some, you know, fancy classroom. This was like, no, this is the roots of how we need to get this record out there, how we need to get this music out there. And I think there's several similarities to how business and how music continues to matter. It's not just about the quality of the record, or it's not just about the recognition of the record. There needs to be some form of distribution. And if you could bring together the distribution with the product, with the music, that's how you make things happen. And someone that has followed hip hop for a long time, the Bad Boy Street team, as you mentioned, yeah, is the one that gets mentioned most. And I do think that that is at least one of the biggest differentiating factors in terms of why we all remember this music, why Bad Boy had a sound and a feeling that was able to extend, not just in you know New York, but in the rest of the country. Absolutely. I'm curious because some of the records that you've worked on, I'm sure there's always this difference, right? Where I'm sure there's some memorable records that you broke and I'm sure there are some hits that would have been hits regardless, right? But there's probably a few records that, you know, this was a good hit, but I really think this street team brought it to another level and our marketing tactics is what made this record break. Is there anything that stands out to you? from your experience there where you're like, yes, this record is the one that I feel most proud of because we were able to get it from good to great. 
Oh, there's so many. And I can't take credit. I wish I could for one particular marketing tactic that we had in the early days, even before Bad Boy really launched. You know, Bad Boy launched with two artists, Notorious B.I.G., a.k.a. Biggie Smalls and Craig Mack. And I really wish I was the one who came up with this campaign, but I just can't take the credit. But we started this amazing campaign, which was the Big Mac campaign. And it really got people to look at Bad Boy like, whoa, what are they doing over there? We actually sent out, like if you go to McDonald's and you see those Big Mac packages, we sent out to all of the gatekeepers in the industry and all of the influencers in the industry, these Big Mac packages. And on one side, it was Notorious B.I.G.'s first single. And then the other side was Flavor in Your Ear, Craig Mack's first single. So that stands out to me. But there's so many. I mean, having the moment of, okay, you know what? I'll just condense it because the Notorious B.I.G. wave, it led into so many of the artists because Puff, you know, he really invented that whole piggybacking thing where he took one successful artist and he would put him on an upstart, whoever was next up to bat. If Mace was next up to bat, Big was on Mace's record, you know, the locks come out or now Mace is on their record, so forth and so on. But there was an underdog in the crew called Black Rob who was around from the beginning, but he just never really had his shot. I was hoping you were going to mention Black Rob because that's who I had in mind. I have to. And you say if there's one record that stands out, I have to say the Black Rob Woe record because Black Rob was the underdog of the crew and everybody had come out been successful even dropped second albums before black rob had a chance to drop his first album and when he dropped bad boy was actually on a decline and i remember going on the road with rob and we were on the road literally for six months working this record and i can remember just as vividly as it was yesterday Every single market we would hit, you know, it started out to where no one knew the record. Then it started to pick up a little. Then, you know, back in those days, you went to markets and you did everything. You did college radio. It was no blogs back in those days, but you did all of the local magazines. And we would work a market to death. And then we move on to the next market. But we got to Cleveland and the record was growing But when we got to Cleveland, after being on the road for months, Rob performed, and I forget the name of the club, but he performed Woe, and it tore that building down. I mean, people were, like the energy in that building, it's almost like we knew we had a hit on our hands because they were waiting for Rob to come in. And when they heard that record, it was a special hip-hop moment you know we all just looked at each other and rob being the underdog of the bad boy crew just to see him get one of his own and really put that label on his back it just was a special moment so i'm gonna say black rob woe yeah i'm glad you said that one because if you didn't that's gonna be the one i was gonna mention myself i still remember i want to say it was like summer 99 i feel like that's when it came out or it was sometime around, or at least that's when I had heard it. And I remember hearing it, and then I saw the music video for it. And it was also different from a lot of that post-Biggie bad boy sound. Like a lot of it was still capturing a lot of the Mace, the Harlem world style. But then when you heard that, 
it stuck out and I was like, okay, he's bad boy, but he's a little bit on his own path, not necessarily doing the flashy suits or some of the other things. And that's the one that stuck out to me. And then seeing him then on the remixes on all the other big songs afterward, it was like, no, this is a machine right now. Absolutely. Yeah, he killed it. And I'm so happy to even hear you say that. That was the one that stuck out for you. But I got to say, with all of the records that I work, and I worked so many, that was just a special ride we were on. Yeah. You mentioned the Big Mac promotion that you had had. And looking at some of the work that you've done since then with Power Moves and some of the branding opportunities, if I'm connecting the dots, it would seem like seeing how products and companies can help partner with hip-hop artists and the two of them can continue to grow that must have crystallized what was then possible and that i think would have presented some additional opportunities of what you had in mind for what power moves could be was that kind of the mindset there yeah you know i'm a promotion person and a marketer innately it's just part of my dna if you show me a cup my mind instantly starts to think how can we market this cup what can we do that would make this seemingly random red plastic cup seem special in a sea full of other plastic cups so me heading up the promotion and marketing department at bad boy for so many years and really understanding the power of grassroots and guerrilla marketing and alternative marketing. When I started Power Moves, my marketing agency, I took that same mindset into everything that we did because when you really think about it, whether it's music or it is alcohol, you know, products, they're widgets, they're interchangeable. And you could use the same principles to market whatever it is. The, the key thing is you have to understand your audience. And as an agency, we have been highly successful because we really do have years and years of experience marketing and promoting to an underserved and an underappreciated Black and Latino audience. We are that audience. We work with them. We live with them. You know, we play with them. We understand that consumer mindset. So we've been very successful because we've been able to penetrate deep into the nooks and the crannies of this community with these groundbreaking strategies that so many traditional marketers would never have come up with because it's not textbook. It's not your norm. But that's what grassroots and alternative marketing is all about. Right. And you've been able to extend that in a few different areas there, both with how you've looked at influencers, product marketing, social marketing as well. I mean, I would imagine that a lot of that work has evolved considerably since you starting that in the early 2000s to what it looks like today. Sure. I mean, it always changes. But again, the principles remain the same. I'll give you a for instance. I made a big part of my career working with radio programmers and DJs, right? And I have these longstanding relationships with DJs. Now, let's think about the DJ. They are some of the most connected, ear-to-the-ground people 
that you'll ever find. And they really do understand their market because what people are listening to in the Bay Area may not be what people are listening to just a few hours down the road in L.A. What people are listening to in L.A. are not going to be the same thing that's in New York City, so forth and so on. But the DJs, they have their finger on the pulse in these markets because they're breaking not just local artists, but they're able to hear records that are now national records and say, you know what, this record will fit within my market. Well, guess what? If you have that insight into what works within a particular market, you're powerful. And we took those same DJs and we said, you guys can market more than just music. You're bigger and you have more influence than just playing records. And I'll give you a for instance. I'll never forget five o'clock in the morning. I don't know if it's maybe 2008, 2009. I'm on the phone with Diddy and he's in his Miami home. He had just signed his deal with Ciroc. The world didn't know Ciroc whatsoever. People didn't know how to pronounce it. You know, Ciroc is spelled C-I-R-O-C. Phonetically, when you look at that, you don't know how to, is it Ciroc? Is it Ciroc? Is it, you is know, it Cur- Yeah, you had no idea. Exactly. You have no idea. We're on the phone and he's like, you know, Prez, this is something that could change all of our lives, but I need you to put on your brilliant marketing hat and you got to come up with something different. You have to come up with something that's going to move the needle in the liquor industry. And I sit and I think and I sit and I think and it just dawned on me like it's the DJs. Where are the DJs at? They're in the clubs. What are people doing in the clubs? They're dancing and they're drinking. Right. Where are the DJs at? They're on air. They have their mixed shows and they're on air. But it's one other thing. They're shouting out and they're cracking that mic. And they're the ones who are telling you what's new, what's next. And I said, we have to come up with what now is known as the Ciroc Boys. And we came up with this crew of top level DJs from all all over the country, and we branded them Ciroc Boys. And we sent them out in their respective markets, and they were the ones who were on the ground. You know, if they're spinning in clubs three, four, five nights a week, they were the ones who were telling people at that time, Grey Goose is done. You got to get on this Ciroc. Come to the DJ booth. I have drink tickets. Get Ciroc on me. They were the ones in between the DJ sets when they went on to the radio. They were telling people, yo, this is the new hot record. This record was cranking last night in the club. And I was definitely doing it big with Ciroc on deck. And it became infectious to where everybody wanted to be a Ciroc boy and then wanted to be a Ciroc girl. But it all started off with the DJs. So we were just using the pieces that we already had in play and we repurposed them. We started to innovate and use what they already did and they did best. We used it for a whole different product. And as we know, Ciroc went from 40,000 cases being sold annually to upwards of two and a half million. 
Yeah, that was one of the most impressive campaigns that I had seen. And it's the one that sticks out to me of the ones that Diddy has been involved with. And it makes perfect sense. When I think about Ciroc and the impact that it's had, it was able to get this cool factor that white liquor doesn't necessarily have or clear liquor doesn't necessarily have with hip hop. Usually it's the brown, it's crown, it's Hennessy. So the fact that it was able to cross over that threshold as well speaks a lot. And of course, as we both know, hip hop moves culture, then it extends beyond hip hop. It became that go-to drink, expanded to all these different flavors. Yeah, it was dope. Nah, thank you. That's one of my most proud marketing campaigns that our company was able to conceive and execute. And I would think that understanding the influence of DJs led a lot to the recognition of them. And that, I would assume, was the impetus for why you had started the Global Spin Awards as an awards show to recognize the success and the greatness of the DJs and the impact that they've had on the culture. You're absolutely right. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I love being an entrepreneur. I love hip hop. Like I said earlier, I worked with the DJs and they're a big part of my success in the music industry. And working with them year over year, I realized that there was this white space in the market. And what I mean by that was every year you'd have the Grammys, which celebrated all of the artists that the DJs were responsible for breaking. You had the Oscars, which celebrated actors. You had the SAG Awards, you know, which celebrated writers. The BMI and ASCAP Awards, which celebrated writers on the music side. There were so many award ceremonies, but nobody recognized the backbone and the front line of the music industry, which are the DJs. And I typically get into businesses that I'm passionate about, not just that I see this open area or this white space, but I'm an entrepreneur and I have to do things that I love and I'm passionate about and I'm willing to put the work in. And me recognizing that there was literally no award ceremony that recognized the DJs for their contribution to entertainment and music. You know, I came up with, I won't take all the credit because it's a team effort. My staff at Power Moves Inc., we came up with the Global Spin Awards and it has very fastly become the Grammys for the DJs. And I think all of the DJs really look at this thing as, well, not that they look at it, it is what it is. It is the highest honor that any DJ can receive within a calendar year. So the Global Spin Awards is the biggest thing going in the DJ community in terms of an award ceremony. Yeah, I hear you on the white space, because when we think about the movie industry, yes, there's the Oscars for the films, but they have all their separate ones. There's the Screen Actors Guild, the Producers Guild, directors, and so on. Like, There's all these other niches to represent and celebrate every other aspect, but music didn't have that. And I think the fact that this has now been running and you know, just seeing the response, it's something that matters. It is an honor. I think that says a lot. And I could imagine that it was definitely, you know, had its opportunities, but 
when you're trying to start something like that new? Were there any types of challenges that you faced or any type of uphill battles in terms of getting something like this off the ground? It's a great question, Dan. For anybody out there who's an entrepreneur, I want you to listen up. Anybody out there who's thinking about becoming an entrepreneur, listen up. This entire ride has been a, has been an uphill battle. There has been nothing but challenges. When you have a vision and you're committed to executing on it, there are going to be so many things that come up that make you doubt your original vision. And it makes you doubt your idea. And it makes you doubt, why did I get into this to begin with? It's a bad idea. Nobody's reacting. Nobody's responding. That's where the true entrepreneur grit comes in. Because sometimes you're the only person that's going to believe. You're the only person that's going to see when nobody else sees. So to answer your question in particular, (laughs) I could go down the list of challenges. I'll start with, I thought that this was going to be a slam dunk. Within the DJ community, forget everybody else, just within the DJ community, I thought it would be a slam dunk because they didn't have anything to recognize them. So our first Global Spin Awards, number one, was held in New York City, in the heart of New York City, in Times Square at the New York Times Center. The New York Times Center held 300 seats. It has 300 seats there. So we were like, we're going to do it small. But we will be able to pack the place easily. We invited every DJ. We put out our nominations. I don't even know if we had 120 people that showed up. Oh, man. Literally 120 people that showed up. And that was with heavy marketing. It was using all of my favors, all of my leverage. And out of the 120 people, I'd say less than half were DJs. Maybe we had 30 DJs in the building. Because the DJs themselves were like, ah, the award shows, they're going to be rigged. You know, who's the one who's voting? Who's to say this DJ is better than me? None of the DJs wanted to lose publicly. So we were in a building that was less than half full. You know, I never did a live production before. So forget attendance. Now there's this such thing as live production. I went to the School of Hard Knocks right out the gate. You know, if you've never done it before, you don't know. And we didn't have a huge budget. So you don't know all of the areas that things can go wrong when you're doing a live production. You know, we have I forget what you call it, where the people come on and they say, you know, our next category is this. And, you know, this person's nominated, that person's nominated. We didn't have cue cards. We didn't have anybody telling them who was being nominated. (laughs) So many things that went wrong. I wanted to go home and hide. And I'll never forget Sway from Sway's Universe on Sirius Satellite Radio. He was our first host. And he told me, you know, because he saw the embarrassment. He saw me and my team. We put everything we had into this show, but we didn't know what we didn't know. And it went so bad so quickly. And he pulled me to the side and he said, Sean, listen, I've seen worse but you got to keep it together because you have something here. He was like, I'm not going to lie to you. This is bad, but I have seen worse, but you have something here. And for the few DJs that did attend, I'll never forget what DJ Red Alert, a guy I look up to, 
you know, I came up listening to him spinning. He went on stage and he made a speech and he just was like, you have to keep this going. And the people who were in attendance, even though I felt like I had egg on my face and I was ashamed and I was so embarrassed because everything that could go wrong went wrong. People saw the potential in what we were doing. So after me hiding out for the next two weeks, you know, I didn't want to take calls. I was so freaking as an entrepreneur, I'm questioning, is this the right move? Is it even worth going forward? It was those little seeds. It was the little things that key people would tell me that I knew I was on the right track. So yes, there were so many challenges year over year over year. And then finally, we start to see an uptick. When we started to announce our nominees, every DJ in the country was going on social media saying how honored I'm nominated for two Global Spin Awards in this category and that category. Thank you so much. And we knew we were on to something. But we had challenges coming out the behind. Trust me. I give you credit, man, because I think that those are the moments where a lot of people may not just falter, but take that as a sign like, okay, maybe this wasn't it. And it's a good thing you had folks like Sway, you were able to take some time to yourself. But no, I mean, it's been several years running now. I'm curious, more specifically, what are the things that you were able to take from that first year or even the year after that as the lessons learned that you improved upon in the next years? Number one, the first year, we didn't have a lot of money. And because I had never done a live event, we didn't have enough money to invest in a production company, but I didn't even know what a production company did, truth be told. So coming out of that, I understood that we had to focus on what we did best. We knew the DJs. We knew the DJ culture. We understood that community. And getting them in the building and also coming up with categories that made sense and nominating them in categories that they found, okay, this makes sense. I'll give you a for instance. Just because a DJ is Latin doesn't mean that they should be nominated in the Latin DJ category because they don't spin Spanish records. They just happen to be Hispanic. But I focused on my strengths. I focused on what I did best. And I started to go out and recruit people who believed in our vision and let them concentrate on what they did best. In terms of production, I keep bringing that up. Production is not my strong point. Making sure staging is right, making sure that all of the monitors are queued up at the same time, that mics are running, that all of those things, I didn't have time to think about that. I'm worried about 50,000 other things the night of. So I started to bring in people who really had a passion for their particular skill set and let them focus on what they do best. And I focused on what I did best. And trust me when I tell you, year two was a disaster. It was just not a bigger disaster as year one, but it was a disaster in the sense of if I had 120 people in the building year one, the next year was about 500 people because the word got out. So I wouldn't say I failed. I just made a lot of mistakes on a bigger scale. Year three rolls around. Now we have a thousand people in the building. A lot of mistakes were made. Maybe not as big as year one, but I'm making mistakes in front of a thousand people now. But every year we started to learn and we started to get better. And by year four, 
we caught our stride and it really started to take off. And that's when you started to see all of the huge A-level talent that we didn't have to beg them anymore to be part of this. They wanted to be part of it. They saw our vision. They understood it. And they understood, more important, I need my record to be played by these DJs. If these DJs have a ceremony that recognizes them and I have a thousand DJs in one building, it would behoove me to be in that same building as a presenter, as a supporter, right. or just to show my face and say, hey, DJs, I'm here I respect what you do. I support what you do. So when my next single comes out, just remember the fact that I came out here for you. Right. And I think that's a good reminder to a lot of folks as well about where the power still lies in music. I know that a lot of things have been shifted to digital and playlist curators and playlists themselves and the digital streaming providers, but radio is still where a majority of folks get and learn about the new music coming. So understanding that that still matters today in 2020 and you being able to leverage that speaks a lot. Yeah, I think there's a new generation that was brought up on streaming and playlists, and that's where they get their new music, and I think it's great. But what the playlists don't do, again, you look at my career, right? I started out as an intern working on the Bad Boy Street team. Then I went on to run the Bad Boy Street team and build it out market to market to market. Then I went into radio, more specifically mix show radio, working with all of the DJs around the country and around the world. What all of this has in common is I have built a career working with people who have their feet on the ground. They are so close to the everyday consumer. And when the DJ plays a record, unlike just hearing a new record on a playlist, and a DJ can say, this record right here, and they can put their seal of approval, they can bring it back, they can scratch it up, they can stop it in the middle of it, blow horns, drop a bomb. So there's a different energy you get for that record now. And that's just something that you can't get from a playlist. I agree with that. I think about People still remember when Fugmaster Flex, well, he's done it for a bunch of songs, but most recently when Otis dropped, I guess that isn't even that recent. It was like eight, nine years ago, but he let that track go for like half an hour and people still remember like Jay-Z and Kanye's new hit Otis. And I agree, that's something that is lost even with you know the most well-known playlist curators out there. That's a tough thing to replace. No, it really is. Again, you know, I speak about alternative and grassroots marketing. What's the most effective form of marketing on planet Earth? I'll ask you that. What do you think the most effective form of marketing is to this day on planet Earth? Oh, word of mouth. There you go. 100%. How many movies or TV shows or products, things you had no interest in buying, going to see, spending your money on, and somebody you know, you trust, they tell you, whoa, that movie is dope. And you're like, huh? Or you got to watch Ozark. Or you got to watch this show. Or, you got to watch Narcos or whatever it is. Even if you had no intention, that word of mouth 
It's everything. It changes your opinion. It changes your buying habits. And it's the same thing in music. If you have somebody who drops that record and they stop it, like you just gave the example of Jay-Z and Kanye West Otis, Funkmaster Flex leaning on that record for 30 minutes straight, bringing it back, screaming, saying this is the hottest record in the world, even if you didn't like that record. By the time that half hour was up, you loved that record and you're paying very close attention to it. That word of mouth marketing, you cannot beat it. It is just, I don't care how many marketing campaigns, how much technology changes the world. There's never going to be any more effective marketing than Dan telling Sean, you have to do, you have to buy, you have to see X, Y, and Z. Agreed. Agreed. Let me ask you this. I know you haven't been in this world for a while, but if you were in charge of dropping a record and trying to break a record today, how do you think you would go about it? Keeping in mind everything that, yeah, like all the word of mouth, but also with today's technology and landscape and environment. For one, as much as times have changed, they stay the same. And what I mean by that is everybody's looking online, which they should. Everybody's trying to get on the Spotify playlist. Everybody's trying to get on the Apple playlist. We get it. But what people have taken for granted, everybody wants to be overnight superstars. Everybody wants to drop their record and overnight it goes viral. And people, you know, I think of fairly recently designer, you know, he creates this record in his room, in the projects. He puts it online and overnight he's a superstar with the Panda record. And yes, that does happen and you become these overnight successes. But the best way to break your record, start local. Start with your friends. Start with your neighborhood. Build a core audience and work your way out. Let your core audience, your friends, your family, you know, for instance, I was born and raised in the Bronx. Now, Everybody wants to be national and international because you could put your record up on the internet and you can become an international success overnight. But there's no substitute for me looking at my audience or looking at my backyard and starting in the Bronx. I get it. The people in the Bay Area might not know me for another two, three years, but I'm going to kill the Bronx. I'm going to work every club. I'm going to work every DJ for the Bronx. I'm going to go to every school and perform. You know, I'm going to put mixtapes out and I'm going to service them locally. But those people will become your brand ambassadors. They will become the ones that start to tell the neighboring boroughs. Here in New York, we have the boroughs. So you have Bronx, Harlem, Queens, Staten Island, Brooklyn. And they'll be the ones to say, you have to listen to Sean's music. And it goes from there. But I think everybody wants to jump the gun. And because of that, they may have a hit record, but that's all they are. They're just a record. They're not established artists. And they don't have true fan bases. The fan base doesn't revolve around them. Like Jay-Z has a fan base. You know, Kanye West has a fan base. 
many of today's artists because they want to get to the finish line so fast and they don't want to start local and then go regional and then go national. The fan base revolves around their record. People could give a crap about them. People are not buying into them. They're buying into a song. And when that song comes and when that song goes, nobody is thinking about them as an artist. So I would say start local. Yes, make the music. The way people consume music, it is so different. You have to feed the beast, meaning people's appetite for content is insatiable. You can't think that you're going to put a record out and not put another record out for another 12 months. You have to continue to grow your fan base online. But I would say really dig deep into your local clubs, your local radio, really dig deep into your local community and then build it out from there because that's when you as an artist is going to have a fan base and they're going to ride with you. It's not just about a song. It's not just about a single. They bought into you and it'll take a minute, but people will eventually connect the dots and tell all of their friends far and near and they'll be the ones that are posting your music on their playlist and they're like, you have to get into this artist. It's not just about one single. So that would be my advice. Makes sense. And I think there's a lot of ways to integrate that with technology as well. I know that a lot of people may be dropping their SoundCloud links and DMs, trying to spread it to everyone. But no, be strategic about it. You can do that with the local community. You can do that with the people and using that as part of your game plan and not just necessarily relying on it solely. No, it makes sense. I know we're getting to the tail end now, but before we let you go, Sean, you've already dropped a bunch of gems for the Trapital audience, but is there anything else you'd like to share or let the audience know about? Yeah. Um, you know, we spoke about a big part of my history in music and entertainment and marketing. That is who I am. But at this point in my life, I'm really focused on giving back and giving back with knowledge, with wisdom, helping to pass whatever gems I have on to others. So please visit me because I'm really into entrepreneurship. My entire life, I've wanted to be an entrepreneur. And back in the 80s, when I was growing up, there was no internet. I didn't have great role models, not to say everybody was drug dealers because that wasn't the case. But in a lot of cases, being an entrepreneur wasn't something that was considered a real way that you can earn a living. You know, I was always told to go ahead and get a job. You know, a real man works eight hours a day, takes care of his family. But I dreamed of something more. I dreamed that one day I could work hard and get myself out of the Bronx and not be a slave to someone else's company. So I've spent the better part of my life really trying to talk with fellow entrepreneurs and allowing them to use my platform to share wisdom, share gems, share experience. So please follow me at Power Moves Prez, P-O-W-E-R-M-O-V-E-S-P-R-E-Z. And that's across all social channels. And if you love these types of conversations, visit my YouTube channel because we dig deep into the minds of fellow entrepreneurs, people who have done amazing things, built multi-million dollar businesses, and I extract gems 
from them. And um, I think if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a person who just wants to move up in your career, there's so much knowledge to be gained. So visit my YouTube channel. Again, it's Power Moves Press. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell at least one friend about this podcast. Word of mouth is still the best way to grow. Go to Apple Podcasts, go to iTunes, leave a review, rate the podcast. I will screenshot and share the podcast ratings on Twitter and Instagram. That can encourage more people to share the podcast. And if this podcast is your first introduction to Trapital, then make sure you check out the rest of the content. Go to Trapital.co. That's T-R-A-P-I-T-A-L.co. Sign up for the weekly newsletter. Get all the content there. And also, shoot me a text. That's also a great way to stay in touch with Trapital content. You can text me, Dan Runcy, at 415-234-3074. Thanks again. See you next week.